Hey, everyone, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. And in this episode, we begin with chapter one of the very first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Chapter one is titled, Lucy Looks into a Wardrobe. Uh, And I need to say something on the outset, uh, as far as the order in which we're going with this podcast. We're beginning with the, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because that is the first novel that Lewis published in the series uh, back in 1950. And um, there is some debate and some controversy over the way in which you should read them, but we will be following the publication order, the order that Aslan would have wanted. (laughs) Uh, When you get a collection at Barnes & Noble or on Amazon, you'll probably see them in chronological order following the Narnian timeline. So starting with the creation of Narnia in The Magician's Nephew with Diggory and Polly, and then going to the line, the witch in the wardrobe second. But uh, for some reasons that I think will bear themselves out as we go along, I prefer to start with the line, the witch in the wardrobe. It, um, Alan Jacobs, uh, who's a, a Lewis scholar, has talked about the moment in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where the four Pevensey children first hear the name Aslan from Mr. Beaver, right when he's giving them the prophecy um, that all that all will be well when Aslan comes. Uh, and Lewis, as the narrator, takes a moment to say, now they didn't know who Aslan was any more than you do, the reader. And it talks about this experience that three of the four children are having of of longing and of ache and joy that they can't quite put their finger on why they're feeling it. And then, of course, Edmund is soured on hearing the name of Aslan. But that moment, the sacredness and the numinous, magical experience that that conjures at the name of Aslan really is a moment that the reader needs to ride that wave along with the characters. And if you go into that scene, having already read The Magician's Nephew, absolutely knowing who Aslan was, that experience is a bit ruined. So so we'll begin with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we'll go chapter by chapter. Uh, chapter one is Lucy Looks Into a Wardrobe, and uh, that is the great start to the grand adventure um, when Lucy discovers this wardrobe in um, the old professor's house. I wanted to take a moment, though, before we get to chapter one and mention the dedication in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the very beginning. It's dedicated to Lucy Barfield, who is uh, Lewis's goddaughter and was the adopted daughter of one of Lewis's dear friends, Owen Barfield. And um, beneath that simple line. There's a a brief letter that Lewis writes to my dear Lucy. He addresses it from your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a line around the middle of it that I think is uh, significant to seeing Lewis's worldview regarding fairy tale and regarding the narrative nature of reality, that God is a storyteller and not just a realistic storyteller in the 21st century definition of it, but he is a uh, fairy tale teller, that he is a lover of fairy, a lover of story, a lover of poetry, and of wonder and astonishment. And he says to Lucy, as a result, you are already too old for fairy tales, and by the time it is printed and bound, you will be older still, but someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. And if you've read Lewis, you know that's a classic Lewis sentence uh, where it is a bit paradoxical, the idea of being old enough to read fairy tales again. But that 
uh, statement, I think, conjures a, a great deal of uh, thought and a great deal of interest into why C.S. Lewis, who had already established himself as an academic and an intellectual uh, with his BBC wartime talks with mere Christianity during the course of World War II, he had been at Oxford for some time. And then um, in the 1950s, having uh, grown older and having no children of his own, he sets his eyes to writing a series of stories for a series of fairy tales, a series of stories for children. It might be a bit of a puzzle, but that line about being old enough to reading fairy tales again uh, makes me think directly back to one of Lewis's heroes, who was G.K. Chesterton, who uh, wrote prolifically right around the turn of the century in England and himself was, like Lewis, a very jolly, very festive man. Um, Peter Kreft once said of Lewis that he's not just a man, but a world. And I think that same compliment could be given to Chesterton. Um, but around the turn of the century, Chesterton wrote his masterpiece, Orthodoxy. And in that book, he has a chapter titled The Ethics of Elfland. And I imagine along the way in this podcast, I'll be given opportunity to give book recommendations, just books on Lewis and uh, books on Narnia and that sort of thing. But if there's a book that would really set the tone and just give the right pitch in which Narnia ought to be interpreted, just set the key for the whole symphony of Narnia, I'd say Chesterton's essay on Elfland that appears in Orthodoxy, The Ethics of Elfland, would be one of them. Because in that chapter, he is talking about the value of fairy tales, and not just for the nursery room, but they have value in providing men and women the right lenses through which they can see the world correctly, that we can uh, see and understand and uh, admire the truth and goodness and beauty of all of who God is by reveling in and and standing back and gazing upon the grandeur of who God is in what he has revealed himself through, through creation, through stars, through grand oceans, that the vastness of the land that we inhabit, the vastness of the cosmos is... Uh, one of the greatest means of determining the vastness of God. And if there's any understanding of vastness, it's usually through the eyes of a child, which incidentally in chapter one, we get that exact experience with Lucy, where she, when her feet start crunching through the snow of Narnia and she's pushing the branches aside, we see this sense of uh, newness, that we see a, a vast world through Lucy's eyes as though we have never seen anything like it before, which is exactly what happens when you're born. You are brought into a universe that is massive and uh, intriguing and wondrous and glorious, and you have no capacity to understand it. You are just overwhelmed by it. And that's what fairy tales did. Uh, Chesterton talks about in, in The Ethics of Elfland, he says, um, that a child of seven can be pleased to hear about a boy who opens a door and sees a dragon as the start of a story. But he says a child of three is content to hear that the boy just opened the door, that uh, the possibility of an adventure is satisfying enough. And the sense of youth and the sense of innocence being intrigued by anything that smacks of story, that 
once upon a time, there once was, Jesus did this when he told parables, there once were two brothers, there once was a lost coin, that that setup of a great narrative, that setup of a great story t- touches an ancient nerve within us. What Chesterton says is an ancient nerve for astonishment, an ancient instinct. I want to read here a passage from Orthodoxy here by Chesterton that talks about adults reading fairy tales and needing to. He says, we all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon, but a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. And then uh, Joseph Pierce in uh, his book titled Further Up and Further In about Narnia, he says this. This is Joseph Pierce. It is the old and jaded who need to be reawakened to the astonishing cosmos of which they are a miraculous part. And fairy stories are one of the most powerful elixirs for reawakening our sense of wonder. One might almost say that children should read fairy stories as an investment in their future, placing such tales in their experience of reality that they might draw upon them when, as adults, they are threatened with moral bankruptcy. And I love Pierce's idea that the fairy tales we ingest as children, the fairy tales that we swallow up and gobble up on our mother's laps, are not just uh, stories to entertain us, which of course they are, and they're not just stories that instruct us on the way the world is, which they are. Chesterton said that uh, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us dragons exist, but because they tell us dragons can be beaten. That there's something about the structure and the purpose of fairy tales that teach us what is right and wrong and what is true and false, what is beautiful and what is ugly. And it gives us equipment for living. It gives us a sword and shield. It gives us a road and a sense of adventure. But then to Pierce's point, he said, they're also an investment for the future when we are old and jaded, when as adults, we have lost our appetite for wonder and we have contented ourselves with the mundane features of our daily lives that we just mosey about staring at our feet, uh, moving through time. And we are content with just the few yards ahead of us rather than looking up into the stars and uh, gazing out into the wondrous cosmos that God has created. Uh, even our the word anthropos, what we are literally means man who looks up. That that's what makes us different from animals. We wonder And we ask why, and we reflect, and we consider, and contemplate, and we perceive, and we render what we see in art, and artistic effort, and in poetry. And that's so innate to our humanity. And I think Chesterton just gets that right. And and I think Lewis follows him up, where there's something about fairy tales, Narnia, uh, Middle Earth. There's something about the grandeur of, of... those tales, those fantasies that make them more real because they are the type or they are the archetype that we need to situate our particular contexts around in order to make sense of them. And so it's with that in mind that we need to turn to this first chapter of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because what Lewis does here is fantastic. The What he's able to do in the economy of one chapter is striking because we begin with this very conventional opening to the fairy tale 
type and structure. The opening line is, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And so that is your traditional opening. Once upon a time, there were four children, and here are their names. We just begin with identification and identity. However, in just a few short pages, the final line of chapter one is, Goodness gracious me, exclaimed the fawn. So think of that spectrum. That somehow we open with this uh, customary, conventional opening to the fairy tale in London with our ordinary human characters, four children. And we end with an exclamation from a fawn in some snowy landscape on the other end of a wardrobe. And in just a few short pages, Lewis has got to get us there. That, that scope is uh, emblematic of what Lewis was capable of. He can say a lot in a little. He can contain worlds in just a short chapter. Um, somebody once said that what Lewis thought about anything was contained in what he said about I'm sorry, what Lewis thought about everything is contained in what he said about anything. And this is so evident in chapter one here of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So we get with this opening statement, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And then we immediately after that have the the setting and the context that this is uh, in, during the air raids of World War II over London. And so they are evacuated to this old country house where they meet the old professor, who of course is Diggory Kirk, grown up. The, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, takes place about 40 years or so after The Magician's Nephew in London time, obviously in Narnia time. Um, years have passed and Jadis has assumed uh, uh, the throne, this false throne, and the always winter, never Christmas curse has set in. But here we're uh, set in the middle of wartime. And I think this is another parallel that's of note because we open with war in the line, the witch in the wardrobe in England. And we end the novel with war in Narnia with the first battle of Baruna between Aslan and his forces and the white witch and hers, uh, where Peter, uh, proves himself and, and so on. So this war motif being doubled where we have war in our world and war in the Narnian world and the children must go there to figure out how to live here. They must go to Narnia to discover who they really are so that they can navigate the treacheries and the darknesses and the loss and the grief of this world better, nobler, stronger. Uh, and of course, in Edmund's case, they can navigate the darkness of this world redeemed, uh, forgiven, shown mercy and grace. Um, so the idea of going to Narnia to discover who you really are and then coming back in England changed. Uh, it reminds me of something Aslan will say in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that we go there in Narnia and see him there so that we might know him better here. That Narnia is not an escapist land in the sense of uh, una being unable to deal with the, the difficulties of this land, but it's a, a journey and a quest and an adventure we must take in order to remove the masks and the shackles and the dross of this world and see what's really real, see good and evil in broad, true, glorious colors so that we have eyes to see them here. So the, the children are experiencing war here. They go to Narnia and they will discover that there are four thrones waiting for them, that they have destinies, they have roads that they must take. 
they are kings and queens of Narnia, and they were always prophesied to be kings and queens of Narnia, even though they didn't know it in England. Just because they couldn't see Kira Paravel doesn't mean it wasn't there. The limitation is all on our side. Uh, you and I have grand, glorious roads to take for the kingdom of heaven. And just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. And so we must assume this childlike sense of wonder and uh, enchantment and, and humility so that we might accept the call that has come to us. I, I referenced Frodo in the last episode, how the ring came to him. He must accept the road that he is destined to take. Uh, and of course, we don't go them alone. So we meet the old professor. Uh, we hear of Ivy, Margaret, and Betty. And so we need a moment of silence for these three who Lewis says their names are Ivy, Margaret, and Betty, these housekeepers, these servants with Mrs. McCready. But he says they don't come into the story much. And they don't. So I just want to take a moment to give them their share, their fair share. Ivy, Margaret, and Betty, uh, we acknowledge you. <laughs> and then we get these children. And the interesting thing is that we see Edmund, and we see all four of the children interacting, but Edmund twice in the span of just a couple paragraphs is noted to be pretending. That it said Edmund wanted to laugh at how odd looking the professor looks. And Lewis says he had to pretend he was blowing his nose to hide it. And then just a couple lines down, Edmund, it's Lewis says, was tired, but he had to pretend he was not tired, which always made him bad-tempered. And so here we already get this shadow hovering over Edmund's character that he is bad-tempered, prone to being bad-tempered, and he is a pretender. Edmund is a deceiver. He is clever and cunning, which of course we will... Once he comes to Narnia, we will see him for who he really is at this point in the story, a, a betrayer. He is a deceiver, and he, he defects to the witch's side. A second moment where we see that, it's quite subtle, but it's interesting, is when the four Pevensey children are talking about all the animals they saw on the way to the old house in the countryside. Um, Lucy was excited about badgers, and I think Peter referenced eagles. And Susan talks about rabbits, and Edmund says, foxes. And I love just the fox also as a symbol of deception and, and cunning and cleverness is connected to his character. It's a very interesting choice from Lewis's. Something we see in Peter as well. Twice, Peter in this chapter talks about how there are certain things that the kids could get away with in this house. It's so large that no one will notice what they're up to, and uh, no one will mind what they do. So you see a bit of this untested spirit in Peter. Um, where he seems a bit impetuous and uh, indulgent. But then there's a line where we actually start to see Peter's nobility and his leadership and his right understanding of um, how to experience this wondrous world, where he says, referencing the house, he says, quote, you might find anything in a place like this. And he's talking about the house, but of course that becomes a theme for the whole story because they get to Narnia through the wardrobe that's in this very large and mysterious house. So Peter's declaration that anything could happen if you submit yourself to the enchantment of your setting, which he does. He says, this house is large. It's great. We could have all sorts of fun here. If you demonstrate that sense of wonder and adventure, and if you submit yourself to the story that surrounds you, then you truly will find anything in a place like this. 
And later on in that same page, he says that he's going to go explore the house. And right after that, Lewis says, everyone agreed to this. And that was how the adventures began. And I'd take that as a statement for all the adventures of all seven books. How do they begin? They begin with children who are willing to explore the new house that is in front of them. They are taken away from their home and the comforts and the familiarities of it and taken somewhere new and large and unfamiliar. And yet there's the spirit of willingness that they dive in ready to explore the house. You might find anything in a place like this. And indeed they do. Interestingly, they go down this hallway as they're exploring and they see all sorts of things that smack of Narnian culture. Uh, they see tapestries hung with green. They see a harp. They, uh, my favorite is that they notice a suit of armor there, which when we get to Prince Caspian will certainly be helpful seeing this medieval uh, element to Narnia. And then at last, of course, Lucy finds the wardrobe. And I think it's this moment too, where the whole story funnels into Lucy's point of view that she is the one who discovers Narnia first. It's through her, her eyes that we as readers experience Narnia for the first time. And of course, one of the most famous symbols of the stories is that she notices this lamppost when she gets there. And I think all of that needs to remind us of what Lucy's name really means. It, it comes from the Latin root lux, which means light, that Lucy's name means light. And it's through Lucy that we are given not only the light of reality, that who Lucy really is, she will discover in Narnia, and the lamppost as this guiding light that she follows as she enters in there, but also Lucy as this character that is the light bearer, that she's the one who, um, in Prince Caspian, she sees Aslan when others can't, that Lucy perhaps is our strongest character in the sense of um, love and sympathy and innocence and joy. Um, and so it, it, seeing that whole story through her eyes and possibly even her name coming from Lucy Barfield, uh, the, the goddaughter of Lewis's that he dedicated it to, that's possible. But even just to see Lucy as this character we need to long to be like at our core, this, uh, this child who is drawn to the light and the light of Aslan, uh, the light of truth, the light of the beauty of the world. And she's drawn away from her siblings to the wardrobe. Um, and she obviously starts walking through it. She leaves the door open because she's not a fool. And I want to read this stretch because I think it, it has a lot of interesting language in it to, uh, to note as we move through this conduit from our world to Aslan's country into Narnia. She's, uh, she's opened the wardrobe and it says, looking into the inside, she saw several coats hanging up, mostly long fur coats. There was nothing Lucy liked so much as the smell and feel of fur. I believe that to be a foreshadowing for all of the moments where she will hold herself close to Aslan, that indeed there is nothing she loves so much as the smell and feel of fur. It says she immediately stepped into the wardrobe and got in among the coats and rubbed her face against them, leaving the door open, of course, because she knew that it is very foolish to shut oneself into any wardrobe. And here we see a contrast to Edmund. When he comes in, uh, he lets the door close. He's uh, more negligent than Lucy, more self-centered and, um, and uh, cynical than Lucy. It says, soon she went further in, 
and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up behind the first one. It was almost quite dark in there, and she kept her arms stretched out in front of her so as not to bump her face into the back of the wardrobe. She took a step further in, then two or three steps, always expecting to feel woodwork against the tips of her fingers, but she could not feel it. This must be a simply enormous wardrobe, thought Lucy, going still further in and pushing the soft folds of the coats aside to make room for her. And I love the the repeat of the phrase further in. It occurs three times in that passage where Lucy is guided further in, further in, further into the wardrobe. Um, when she gets to the beaver's house, when all four of them are there, Mr. Beaver will say use the same language when he's inviting them into his dam. He'll say, come further in, come further in, children. And then, of course, Jewel's statement in the last battle regarding the ultimate Narnia to come further up and further in. This is the invitation Lewis is centering on, that in order to see what is really real, in order to experience God, the transcendent, glorious, wondrous power of God and all of his majesty, we must be willing to pull the thread that he has put in front of us. We must be willing to follow his footsteps. We must be willing to go further in, further in, further in. In uh, the first chapter of John, the Jesus asks his disciples what they're seeking. And he, he says to uh, Peter and the rest of his disciples, what are you seeking? And they say, well, where are you going? <laughs> We're seeking you. We will, we will follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, come and see, come and see. And that's the invitation for Jesus. Follow me. Take up your cross. Come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That uh, knowledge comes after experience in many ways. You must simply obey and go further in, having no clue what you're going further in to. Lucy had no idea what she was moving into. She was fully expecting the realistic terminus. She was expecting the back of the wardrobe, and yet she kept putting one foot in front of the other. And it's that faith. It's that childlike faith that we must have. It, we must be small, like Lucy, in order to get into Narnia. We cannot uh, map it. We cannot move there in our hubris or our arrogance to try to plot it on a map for ourselves. We cannot take it. We are simply invited, uh, often at a time when we least expect it. And our experience of it is predicated on our willingness to take one step at a time and go further in, further in, further in. And also, too, this conduit that I mentioned, this wardrobe functioning as this portal between our world and the other, uh, that is very much the language of a second birth going on here, that Lucy is moving from an, a previous identity into a new identity, that she is leaving behind the Lucy evacuating London, and she's entering into the future Queen Lucy that will sit on Care Paravel. She's moving into her inheritance. She's moving into her prophecy. She's moving into the predestined plan of Aslan. She's moving into the world where she really belongs. And she goes into there with this um, not quite infantile, but somewhat uh, young, innocent. Um, faith, this this willingness and this readiness to explore the newness of this glorious world. And she feels, uh, one of Lewis's favorite words, the sense of the numinous, this, this humbling sort of awe at the sublime and the, the terror and the beauty of this great land. 
It says Lucy felt a little frightened, but she felt very inquisitive and excited as well. And I'd say that's a great statement on the Christian faith. A little frightened, but a little excited as well. Uh, that denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him is a little frightening, but it's also a little exciting. And I think just uh, moving through life with your hands wide open uh, rather than shuffling across the bridge, like in T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, where he says he sees crowds and crowds of men shuffling across London Bridge, staring at their own feet. Uh, that This is what our modern world is promising us. That's what they claim progress to be. But God's narrative is one of open-ended surrender to the glory and the astonishing wonder of a fairyland that is real. It's like what Tolkien convinced Lewis of, where Jesus is the myth become fact that he is the word, he is the logos, that he is the really real. And it's that kingdom that we want to taste and long for. This this inconsolable longing that Lewis talks about in Surprised by Joy, this ache and this stab he feels for the real, for the eternal, for the true. Um, it's It's got this platonic element to it as well, where you're leaving the shadowlands, Uh, As Lewis describes it, you're leaving the shadowlands and you're moving into the country of light and the country of true, eternal, undying beauty. Um, It's like what the professor says later in the last battle. Bless me. It's all in Plato. What do they teach them in these schools? And so we get to the final uh, stretch of the chapter where Lewis is in Narnia. Lewis, Lucy is in Narnia and she's uh, drawing to toward the lamppost. And of course, she meets first the first Narnian character, Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, with his famous uh, red scarf, this red woolen muffler around his neck, uh, and he is carrying parcels. And we get our first eternal question from Narnia as well, which is, what is in the parcels? <laughs> Nobody knows. I asked a student that once. I said, what do you suppose is... I asked the student what they thought was in the parcels in the packages. And they said, well, maybe it's Christmas presents. I said, it can't be Christmas presents because right now under the white witch, it is always winter and never Christmas in Narnia. So it can't be that. And so I guess we'll never know. Lewis never divulges what was in those packages. So it's just an eternal mystery. But but also with the introduction of Tumnus here, the fawn, we get what I believe to be some pretty stark color symbolism from Lewis where the detail of Tumnus's red scarf around his neck and this red woolen muffler, uh, but also his skin being rather reddish as well, Lewis says, that red, uh, mo- that moment of red standing out against this backdrop of white, uh, I believe to be atonement symbolism, that um, the, red, the red as a symbol of blood and the white as a symbol of purity. It also recalls that passage in Isaiah where it says, though your sins were scarlet, it shall be as white as snow. So I think it might be some foreshadowing for certainly Aslan's sacrifice on the stone table, but more particularly with Tumnus, his own sacrifice, that Tumnus has a real fork in the road here. And we'll look at it when we get to the next chapter where he and Lucy are are speaking back in his home. But he could very easily go uh, one way or the other. He could be the loyal, compassionate, um, obedient to Aslan a faithful character and protect Lucy, or he could turn like Edmund and become a traitor and betray Lucy and turn her into the white witch. And of course he um, begins down that road, but then is prompted back and by the courage of his convictions saves Lucy and of course is punished later on for it. 
But I believe this red and white symbolism here is important. It sets that uh, theme of the whole novel, this atonement theme of this sacrificial, substitutionary sacrificial atonement through this red and white color. At the very end of the story, one of his hands, as I have said, held the umbrella and the other arm he carried several brown paper parcels. What with the parcels in the snow, it looked just as if he had been doing his Christmas shopping. But of course he hadn't because it's not Christmas in Narnia. He was a fawn, and when he saw Lucy, he gave such a start of surprise that he dropped all his parcels. And we get the final line that I alluded to earlier. Goodness gracious me, exclaimed the fawn. And so what began with a traditional storyteller's opening, uh, once there were four children, now concludes with the startled exclamation of a fawn in this gloriously mysterious land of Narnia. A world where anything can happen, just like Peter said earlier, this is a place where anything can happen, and indeed anything can, and anything will. So Lucy looks into the wardrobe, and she discovers Narnia. Uh, make sure to tune in uh, for our next episode, where we will tackle chapter two, What Lucy Found There. Thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.